Get ready for the greatest roast of all time. The Roast of Tom Brady. A Netflix live event happening May 5th. Hosted by Kevin Hart, the seven-time world champion gets his cleats held to the fire by famous friends and frenemies on an unforgettable night where everything is fair game. Tune in on May 5th at 5 p.m. Pacific time for The Roast of Tom Brady, live only on Netflix. Here you go. Here you go. Halt. Halt. Nothing personal. Word of the day is halt, as in what Bryce Harper wants Major League Baseball to do during the 2021 season so that major leaguers may participate in the now delayed 2020 Tokyo Summer Olympics. Let's give some background into what Bryce is talking about and why, in my opinion, it's never going to happen. I want to tell you about the conversations we've had within baseball about our participation in the Olympics. We worked extremely hard as an industry not to have baseball removed, but baseball has not been a part of the Olympics, and now it was coming back for 2020. One of the biggest issues, if not the biggest issue, was Major League Baseball's unwillingness to allow big league players to go play in the Summer Olympics. But in this era of patriotism, as we get through a global pandemic, it seems that more players seem to have an interest in things patriotic. But let's talk about the reality of what it means to play in the Olympics and what baseball did to try to get an international footprint and whether or not it's worked and whether or not there is a change that could be made. Baseball started something called the World Baseball Classic. The World Baseball Classic is an international tournament that is played during March, during spring training for Major League Baseball. It's played every four years with the exception of the second World Baseball Classic, which happened three years after the first. I'm very familiar with this because the Marlins have hosted the World Baseball Classic and had some of the great games in Marlins Park, in Pro Players Stadium, watching the Dominican Republic, watching Venezuela, the United States. What was going on behind the scenes before the World Baseball Classic is not often talked about. And what was going on was an amazing tug of war between the commissioner's office and owners, owners and players, players and the union, and the commissioner's office and the union. It was a circle of problems. Let's start with the first problem with the World Baseball Classic. And this is just sort of an intro into some of the issues with baseball being an Olympic sport and having major league players participate. The commissioner's office would give a proposal to the owners and would show the numbers from the World Baseball Classic. This is our expected profitability. These are the broadcast rights. This is the prize pool. This is what we're willing to pay players who win, who participate. These are the dates that they will need to report to spring training. These are the dates they'll be gone from spring training as they practice with their team. You're allowed to say no to certain players due to load management. This was load management before there was load management. Is you're allowed as an owner to say no to a certain player who has played a full season of games in the prior year. You cannot allow them to play winter uh, to play in the World Baseball Classic. What's an example of that? If we had a pitcher, let's say Jose Fernandez, let's say Dontrell Willis, let's say a young pitcher who had pitched a full season before, you would not want them playing 
for their team. Now, Jose was an issue with Cuba versus U.S. Dontrell Willis was straight U.S. We would not let Hanley Ramirez play for Dominican Republic, but then he tried to convince us he wanted to because they get so much pressure from their home countries. People who play in Latin America get tremendous pressure from their countries to play. Then the owners have to be the bad guy and say, no, we will not allow you to play. Then you get a call from the agents. You get a call from the player. Please let him play. Please let him play. And then we call up the commissioner and say, how are you going to insure this player? So insurance became a very big issue between owners and the commissioner. And the commissioner then decided that they were going to use pooled money, which is money the commissioner's office has. And they were going to have insurance on all players from a 40-man roster who were playing for a World Baseball Classic country, for a participant country. And that insurance would pay for the salary of that player if that player got hurt in the World Baseball Classic. So if the player plays in the World Baseball Classic and then comes back and gets hurt two weeks later, insurance from baseball would not cover that unless you could prove, which as you know is impossible even with litigation, to prove to an insurance company or to the commissioner, who by the way is the arbiter of an arbitration, that no, this player while he got hurt in April, while he missed time starting in April, it's actually from an injury that took place in March. So that was an issue that we always had. But the commissioner would come to the international committee of which I was a part of and would go through the numbers and it would make perfect sense because we were not getting any love from the IOC, the Olympic Committee, and we wanted a some sort of international presence and we thought we could build the World Baseball Classic into the Olympics, our Olympics, where we could profit, we could get the money, we'd give a little stripple to the union, we'd give some to the players, but the lion's share would be kept by owners and the commissioner, by baseball, by management. So the World Baseball Classic comes and we have a really hard time getting a representative team for the United States. And this is prior to the last World Baseball Classic in 2017, 2016, 17. 2017 was the last one. That's when the U.S. won. That's when Yelly played, Stanton played. And the problem we had is players didn't want to play. Why? Because it meant that they had to start getting ready earlier so their off season would be cut short. And it meant being away from their teammates during spring training, which is a tremendous bonding time. And it's much less work in spring training. You go to a game, you play a few innings, you get to leave early, sort of like how it's going to look when baseball comes back, when it's played post-pandemic, where I, we'll get into that another point, Coca. Coca, I'm not going to, all right, I'll tell everyone. So we're working on this article. We're going to release it. It'll be sometime next week, I think, maybe the week after. I'm not sure. But I've gone through a list of all things that have to be done when baseball comes back. And one of them, spoiler alert, is that when a player is removed from the game, like in spring training, that player will immediately go to the clubhouse, immediately shower, and immediately leave the property. Unheard of during the regular season where players wait in the clubhouse. They wait in their skivvies. They're watching TV in the clubhouse. No going to the food room during the game, but they're on the couch. They're on the lazy boy, and they're there with their arms wrapped, elbows wrapped to high five when the game ends or to pat players on the butt if the team loses. In post-pandemic world, it's like spring training where once players are removed from a game, they go to the clubhouse, meet the media, shower, and leave. If you ask a player what happened in the game today, they would have no idea. Players have no idea the results of spring training games. No clue. They don't know the team record. They don't know if the team won or team lost. It didn't matter. In the World Baseball Classic, the problem is that you'd have to then report. You'd practice with your team, your new team, your country's team in a different place, generally. But 
you'd have to be game ready because when you're representing your country, you cannot be in spring training shape. You have to be in mid-season shape. So pitchers would feel a tremendous pressure to pitch at game levels. And in spring training, that just doesn't happen. When you build up an arm in spring training, it goes from two innings to four innings to six innings, 30 pitches to 50 to 70 to 80 to finally 100 pitches. World Baseball Classic, if you're a starting pitcher, boom, you got to be ready to go. If you're in the bullpen, you are going maximum effort. And as a president of a team, it made me crazy nervous because these pitchers were not ready. So we would say to the commissioner, what if we move the World Baseball Classic to the middle of the summer? Everybody's in game shape. Everybody's ready to go. What if we just eliminated even the All-Star break once every four years, canceled the All-Star game, and did the World Baseball Classic during the All-Star break? That's a concept that actually had some legs. But it didn't cover the fact that players love the All-Star break, which is why they don't love going to the All-Star game, because the game is right in the middle of the season, and the players need a literal break. Baseball's every day. I think we'd have a hard time getting players to do the World Baseball Classic during the season because they would have to then, if you're on a team, whatever country you're playing for, you get no break. But with the Olympics and the allure of a gold medal, would that possibly be enough as opposed to winning the World Baseball Classic trophy, which if you ask players from the States in 2017 was awesome. If you ask people in the Dominican Republic when they won, awesome. Japan, awesome, etc. By the way, a whole nother story, the pressure on each row to play for Japan, overwhelming. I've never seen anything like it. He would tell me stories about what was going on. You have this national pride where they put a pressure on you that if you don't play for your team, it's almost like you are committing treason. I want to say treasonous. That's not a word. Is it a word? Coca, vocabulary man. Treasonous? Treasonous behavior. In any case. So why would Bryce Harper come out today and say that let's play in the Olympics? Let's get major league players to Tokyo. Well, here's the problem. Are you going to stop the season for two weeks? Or are we going to play on without our best players? Well, as a president of a team, I'll tell you this, number one, no. If I am the Philadelphia Phillies, you think that I'm going to play 10 or 12 games without Bryce Harper when he's not injured and still pay him? Or even if I get reimbursed by baseball for that money, which by the way, there is no chance because it's not economically viable under any scenario for central baseball to pay teams the salaries. Now, Coco whispering in my ear, and I appreciate that, telling me that soccer plays on without its best players for international duties. That's great, Coca. I love that soccer does that. I think it's outstanding. I think what you're missing is the international part of soccer is a huge part of the financial puzzle. Huge. That said, the Olympics would not be a moneymaker because it would not be owned by Major League Baseball the way the World Baseball Classic is. You'd basically be stopping your season for two weeks. What about the pitchers and players who are not playing in the World Baseball Classic, which is about 95% of baseball? Do you just take a break? Then you've got to build up arms again. Do you do simulated games? Do you have games that don't count? Do you have spring training games, exhibition games? What happens to players when they get hurt during the Olympics, which is in the middle of the season? I don't want my players. I'm okay in March. I wanted players to play even though it was a tough one because I don't want my best players to be hurt because that hurts your season. But you say, go play in the World Baseball Classic. It's a, it's a few games. It's right here in Florida, Arizona. Some of the players have to travel internationally, but all in all, it's not the end of the world.
This would be a trip to Tokyo, which, by the way, takes its toll. Then you're playing for two weeks, and the U.S. team would not be eliminated. They'd, in theory, be in the gold medal game. Then they'd have to come back, and then they'd need a few days off. And all in all, where's the path of the money? It's flowing to the IOC, the broadcast rights, the sponsorship rights. All of that is not going to me or to us or even to the player. In the World Baseball Classic, players get paid when they win. In the Olympics, they won't. But Bryce does a tweet and he, or he does a radio show and he says, it's dumb. It's dumb that we're not there. And then he has no inkling as to the other side of the equation. And he's trying to rile up all the players and get them all excited. And now we're going to look like the bat. We, there's the we, Coca. That's a dollar in the jar. I got to put a dollar in the jar every time I say we instead of they, because clearly it's they. For two and a half years, it's been they, but I continue to say we. So landing that plane of the we, they, where is the money? Was that the plane? My head is all in the sky today. It's Friday. My head is in the clouds because after recording this show, the Blue Angels are flying, I think, very near where I am in Miami, Fort Lauderdale. They're doing a 25-minute ride to honor healthcare workers. I'm not quite sure of the correlation between the Blue Angels flying, potentially a taxpayer's expense, and the benefit that is to healthcare workers and first responders. I would rather it happen on a more micro basis where people applaud and thank and tip extra money or just are nicer. Wouldn't that be better than the Blue Angels flying? Well, I do know they need their practice, as we talked about in the Terry Verd story from the other day. I just find it to be strange. I'll be out there clapping. What's the other word when you salute? I'd feel a little guilty about it, though. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. So you want to talk to Samson. Oh, we got a war brewing, folks. We got a war within my DMs. Please follow me at David P. Samson. Thanks for downloading and subscribing. I appreciate it. Tell your friends about nothing personal, please. Go into the DMs of David P. Samson on Twitter. Ask a question. This was an interesting one. So you want to talk to Samson. Is there a revenue sharing war brewing between the union and management? And will that stop baseball from being played in 2020? Ding, 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 ding. You have asked one of the great questions. There was just an article released today about this. Maybe that's where the question came from. It's something I've been talking about on radio shows, on CBS Sports HQ, and it's time to bring that conversation to nothing personal because there is a significant war brewing, not just between owners, but between owners and players. Let me give you the background. When it, Revenue sharing is when all 30 teams put their local revenue, defined local revenue, it's called, net defined local revenue, NDLR, they put into a pot. In goes the money, you mix the pot around, I'm making it much more simplistic than it is, but you mix the pot around, 
And then that money is distributed to all teams. But a portion of that money that comes from high revenue teams is put into the pot and they don't get that part back. That part of the pot goes to the low revenue teams. High revenue teams are called revenue sharing payors. Low revenue teams are called revenue sharing payees. They get the money. There's something in baseball called the financial information questionnaire, an FIQ. A financial information questionnaire is filled out by each team several times throughout the year. But the most important one for me as a president of a team for all those years, 18 of them, was I needed to see the off-season financial information questionnaire, which had the projections for the coming season for each team. So the Dodgers would send their questionnaire. We plan on having 25,000 season ticket holders with an average ticket price of $52. Plus we've got broadcast revenue of $250 million. Plus we have parking revenue of blank. We put it all in the pot. Our local revenue is going to be $400 million. The Marlins fill theirs out. Our local revenue is going to be $50 million. So you put it all the way through. That was sort of supposed to be subliminal, man. Kevin Neal and a shout out to you, Mr. Subliminal. Yeah, check out some old clips of Saturday Night Live back in the day. Not like the old day with Bill Murray and Dan Aykroyd, but Kevin Nealon, Phil Hartman. People say those were the dog days of SNL. It wasn't so doggy. So you put it in the pot, you get money, you fill out the financial information questionnaire. From that, there is an estimate. It's called the revenue sharing estimate. Every team gets a revenue sharing estimate of how much they will either have to pay or how much they will get. That is, of course, based on 162-game season, 81 home games, full fans, et cetera, et cetera. We as the Marlins would take that revenue sharing estimate. We would put that into our budget. And from that budget, we would come up with a payroll. Then with that payroll, we would use the offseason to sign players, trade players, whatever we had to do. Once the owner decided how much money he wanted to lose, was willing, how big a check he was willing to write, which happened every year except maybe two or three of my 18 years. Yes, I am the champion team president. I can lose money on an annual basis like nobody's business. But don't worry, the asset value always will go up. <laughs> I'm just kidding. I'm actually not kidding. That's how I would convince the owner. Listen, we're going to lose $20 million, but I promise the team will go up by more than that. It's a great investment. Hey, if you don't want to put the money in, can I put the money in? We're going to have to cut the losses to about $250. But if you're willing to do that, I'll take those losses. But I just want to get the $250 back plus the asset appreciation value that's going to happen this year. So the Marlins go through and they make their budget, much like other teams receiving revenue sharing, the Kansas City Royals, the Cleveland Indians, the Tampa Bay Rays, yada, yada, yada. So they sign players. They have a budget. Everything's fine. Boom. COVID-19. Uh-oh. Houston, we have a problem. The problem is that the Marlins made their payroll and every team made its payroll based on those revenue sharing projections. Those revenue sharing projections that were filled out before COVID-19 can be used to wipe your tushy. They are toilet paper because not one team will hit its local revenue projections. So what happens during the course of a regular season is you get updates throughout the season with a new financial information questionnaire. And that's when teams know, hey, I can add some money at the trade deadline. Hey, I better shed some money at the deadline. Hey, I'm not going to get as much revenue share as I thought because the Yankees thought they were going to have 30,000 season ticket holders. It turns out they only have 20,000 season ticket holders. Uh Uh-oh. 
Teams get to say, hey, I can now take a pitcher in because I thought the Yankees would have 30,000 season ticket holders. Now they have 40,000 season ticket holders. They've got to put more money into that vat of revenue sharing. We're going to get a few extra mil. Let's go ahead and trade for a pitcher or a closer, starter, somebody. This year, that whole formula is finished because if every team got it wrong, let's talk about the impact. The impact is, and it's called the revenue sharing impact, that if the Marlins were assuming they were going to get, I'm making up a number, let's say $50 million, but they only end up getting $20 million, that is a $30 million extra loss that they cannot handle because they can't borrow any more money, maybe, and they then will have to cut payroll. The Montreal Expos in 1995, after the strike ended, they had to trade players before the season even started. I'm predicting here that if baseball starts at any point in 2020, there will be teams who will have to cut payroll. Whether they're allowed to, right now there's a transaction freeze. Whether they're allowed to is one thing because they may be able to go borrow the money, extra money above the debt cap. Major League Baseball has a debt ceiling for each team. They would have to go to the union to get an exception to a team going over the debt cap to violating the debt service rule, which is a rule of how much debt a team can have. And then they could use that debt to pay a payroll that they couldn't afford. But then that's going to get taken away from the 2021 payroll. Because if I'm running a team and you're making me lose extra money now, there's only so much that Shell Silverstein can do. Eventually, the giving tree runs out of leaves. And when it does, the impact will be felt by players in the form of average salary. So one of the arguments that's going to take place was not really properly fully described in the articles today. First, there's going to be an argument between owners. Big market owners will say, I don't want to put any more money into revenue sharing. As a matter of fact, I want to rewrite all of revenue sharing because this year I am so out of it because no fans. And my payroll is so high, I don't want to trade anyone. I'm not trading Mookie Betts. I'm playing the season with him. But I assumed I'd have a sold out Chavez Ravine where the Dodgers play is called Chavez Ravine, Dodger Stadium where teams like the Cleveland Indians will say, I kept Lindor assuming I was going to get revenue sharing. I got to move Lindor. Who wants him? Big market teams normally would say, we'll take him, but now there's no way a big market team is going to take on an extra $17 million. I think that's Lindor's salary, prorated, of course. So you've got owners who will have to discuss with owners how to redo revenue sharing. Then on top of that, once there's an agreement between owners on revenue sharing, then they've got to go to the players and say, listen, you may think if we only play 81 games and you're a $10 million player that you're now going to get $5 million. Surprise. It's a Zoom bomb. We're not giving you $5 million, even though you're playing 81 games. And the reason we're not is that when we say that we would give you a prorated amount of your salary, depending on the number of games, we assumed full fans. We wrote in our agreement that we gave you in March. We, that's another dollar coca. God, charities are going to be so happy and lucky. When we made that agreement in March, we made it very clear, no matter what, Tony Clark, we again, coca, can you stop it? It's they. He's with, Coca's doing something very mean. It must be a Friday. He's grumpy. I get it. He cut his hair off. His beard is long. He's freaking out. He keeps like whispering, we, we, we. It's they, Coca. It's they. 
Coca just said, hey, can we put the money in the jar into my student loans? What charity is that? When you become a 501c3 Coca, that's when every time I say we instead of they and the dollar goes in, we'll put that jar of money to you if you are a 501c3, which means you're a charity. Now, I know you're a charity case, but you're not an actual charity as defined by the government. Nice try. Wee, wee. All right, Neil, and it's not happening. So if they think, owners, that they're going to call the players and say, listen, we had an agreement and the agreement was very clear. The agreement said without fans, we are going to redo what your prorated amount of salary will be. And the players are saying, no way, man. We agreed to prorated. You have 81 games. You're going to hide revenue left and right. We don't trust you at all. All of that is true. We do hide revenue from you. We have broadcast deals. We own our own networks. Not we, not they. It's some We are going to downplay our revenues. We're going to mess around. There's something called a revenue sharing committee where they're arguing about how much of a broadcast deal should be used in terms of calculating revenue sharing. We know all the tricks, Tony, but the reality is this. If there's going to be baseball, there are going to be two major negotiations that have to take place. Number one, between owners and owners, and number two, between owners and players. We are in the second inning of starting baseball again. Thanks for that question. Oh, Brett Favre. How could you? How could you do it, Brett? But he did it. I got a story about Brett Favre. I got a story about personal endorsements, about players who live a certain way, giving their salary when they're playing and want to keep the income coming after they're done playing. They figure out things to do. Endorsements are a huge thing. Appearances are a huge source of income for celebrities. Corporations will call somebody and say, Hey, we'll give you 50 grand. Come give a 15 minute talk to our sales team. Hey, we'll give you a hundred grand. Come shake hands, take pictures. We'll make sure that there's only 10 photos. We'll make sure the room only has 40 people. Then you'll come out and talk to 200 of our best employees and you got 50 grand. Oh, you need a hundred grand. All right. All you got to do is make an appearance in front of a larger group and we're going to have you have a dinner. For 250 grand, there's going to be a dinner. There's going to be private meet and greets. Plus, you're going to have to sign a bunch of items, which we're going to use to give to our employees. And on top of that, we're going to ask you to meet some of our own sponsors. Oh, for that, we're willing to go to 500 grand. I think you get my point. Celebrity endorsers make money to make commercials. They make money to endorse products, but they also make money to make appearances. One of my favorite movies that you know, Lost in Translation, Bill Murray is an actor, the character who goes to Japan and does commercials for for good times. It's Sandusky time. I I think Sandusky is the tire parts company in Ohio. That's Sandusky from Tommy Boy with Dan Aykroyd. I can't remember the name of the whiskey in Lost in Translation, but people do unbelievable things to make money. Brett Favre is no exception. One other avenue of making money is when you represent a city or a community. So Miami has an entire budget within its big countywide budget. And part of its budget is to attract tourism because tourism is such a huge part. And it's really missing now in Miami, Fort Lauderdale. But in normal years, tourism is a huge part of the business. Money comes in from tourists and that is used for services by the community. So Miami will pay Pitbull or Gloria Stefan or other Miami figures 
Jennifer Lopez, Alex Rodriguez, take your pick. They will use celebrities to say, hey, Miami's the greatest city in the world. Come here and enjoy our beaches. Yes, that'll be $75,000. That'll be $200,000. Then they show the commercial. They tweet it out. They put it on TV. And people say, wow, if Mark Anthony is enjoying time on a yacht, I want to be in Miami. I don't know that anyone's ever made a decision to go to a place because of a celebrity endorser or if anyone's decided to have a Coke instead of a Pepsi because of a celebrity endorser. I love the Mean Joe Green Coke commercials when I was a kid. I'm aging myself, but does that mean that my mother let me drink Coke? No, we weren't a Pepsi home either, but I get the whole thing because in baseball, we're telling sponsors, listen, if you sponsor our team, our fans will use your products. We have a study that says if you are an endorser of this product and you're associated with the team, fans are more apt to choose that product. It's horse hockey, Colonel Sherman Potter. But Brett Favre, post-retirement, did a few appearances. Turns out he was paid $1.1 million to do something for his home state of Mississippi. It was part of a budget of tourism, part of child welfare, whatever bucket the money came from, that money was paid to Brett Favre and Brett Favre was supposed to do something and get the money. Well, during an audit that was not looking for such fraud, it was discovered that Brett Favre was paid $1.1 million for something he never did, for appearances he never made. But he got the $1.1 million And he's not in trouble from a criminal standpoint, but he's certainly in trouble from my standpoint. Do you write and collect a $1 million check and deposit it for something that you know you didn't do? Well, Brett Favre got caught and he released a full statement and boy, was it funny. Get ready. My agent is often approached, Brett Favre said, by different products and brands for me to appear in one way or another. This request was no different And I did numerous ads for Families First. I have never received monies for obligations I didn't meet. To reiterate Auditor White's statement, that's the auditor of Mississippi who found the fact that Families First had given Brett Favre $1.1 million for what turned out to be things he didn't do. To reiterate Auditor White's statement, I was unaware that the money being dispersed was paid for out of funds not intended for that purpose. And because of that, I'm refunding the full amount back to Mississippi. I've spent my entire career helping children through far for hope, donating nearly 10 million to underserved and underprivileged children in Mississippi and Wisconsin. It has brought a ton of joy to my life, and I would certainly never do anything to take away from the children I have fought to help. I love Mississippi, and I would never knowingly do anything to take away from those that need it most. He meant from those who need it most. Brett, I'm calling you out on the statement and here's why. The way it works is when your agent has something for you, the agent calls you and says, all right, we've got something where you can make $1.1 million. Now, is that $1.1 million net? Because he's paying back $1.1 million. But agents don't work for free. Agents get, let's just say for math purposes, 10%. So that would mean it would be a fee, let's say, of 1.2 is what was paid to Favre. And Brett would only get... 1.2 minus 120,000, which would be 1.08, but he's paying back 1.1. And the auditor said that it was a 1.1 payment. Does that mean that his agent does things for free? Or did he 
not get the full 1-1, but he's paying back the full 1-1, and he's going to collect the agent's vigorish from the agent directly. Not in the statement. That's a small little side. But an agent calls you and says, hey, we got an appearance, Brett. You got to schlep to Mississippi. Well, that's where I live. I'm good with that. And you got to go and give two speeches, shake 10 hands, and they're giving us $1.1 million for two appearances. It's brilliant. Let's do it. I'm in. Click. I'm good with Brett Favre clicking. I'm good with the agent. It's all good. Money comes in. The agent sends the, gets the money from Mississippi, sends the money to Favre, takes his cut or her cut. Favre gets the money. Is Favre so rich he doesn't notice when there's an extra $1.1 million in his account? The evidence would say no, and I'll explain why. Actually, I'm going to explain why right now. Because Brett Favre has agreed to pay back the $1.1 million in installments. 500000 now and 600000 over the next three months. Does that mean he doesn't have enough liquidity? Does that mean he wants to get a little extra interest even though the interest rate is zero? Why not just write the $1.1 million now, give it back to Mississippi? The only reason would be that he doesn't have it all, or if he has it all, he doesn't want to part with it, or it's not liquid enough. But someone his age would definitely have an asset allocation that's not all equities. It would be in certain amount of fixed income, which is bonds, and that is extremely liquid. Even if it's all in three-month treasuries, you don't put all your money in three-month treasuries, you still would have some current cash. But I'll give him the benefit of the doubt. He has no liquidity, so he's giving back the $1.1 million over the course of the four months. Why is he giving the money back again? Because he says in his statement that he didn't realize he was receiving monies from a place where the funds shouldn't have come from. Well, the agent would then get on the phone to Mississippi and say, listen, I'm so sorry. I know that money shouldn't have come out of the family's first budget, but you better take out of the tourism budget, whatever budget else you're supposed to, because my client did what he was supposed to do. He's not giving back the money. And we're not going to publicly shame him into giving back the money. You're just going to have to take from the left pocket, put it into the right pocket if you're Mississippi. But that's nowhere in the statement. In the statement, it actually says that Brett Favre says, he said, I didn't receive any money for, any, for obligations I didn't meet. But that is contrary to what was found. None of it passes the smell test to me. None of it at all. Happy John Wick Day. I didn't even know what that meant. Coca texted me yesterday. We do fun stuff when we used to be in an office and used to actually see each other, not on Zoom. We would have funny, hey, what are your favorite action movies? What are your favorite action characters? What's your favorite action series? What's your fa- Who are the top five players in your NBA world? Would they beat my top five players? Let's pretend we're having a game. We do all this stuff, just exercising our absolute brainless brains. Turns out that Coca's favorite movie franchise of all time, is John Wick. And I had never seen a John Wick movie ever. So I'm looking at what my movie of the day is going to be because, of course, I'm going to watch a movie. That's what I do. And I just came across because I was on Amazon Prime and I was looking around and it said movie franchises. It made me think of what we had done coming up with our favorite franchises. And boom, there it was, John Wick. I said, all right, I'm in. I didn't even text Coca. I didn't want him to know I was watching it. So I watch John Wick 1. And he had sent me that today was John Wick Day. And it was totally unrelated, I think. I don't think I knew it was John Wick Day when I started to watch John Wick, or I saw that it was John Wick Day, so I decided to look for a movie, and then I saw John Wick, so I decided to watch John Wick. I have no idea how my brain was working at the time. But cut to yesterday, when I'm watching John Wick, 
Keanu Reeves, who I love from Parenthood, I love from Bill and Ted's Excellent Adventure, I love him from The Matrix. I knew that he did John Wick movies, but I had no idea what they were about. I had never seen a trailer. I had never seen a hint of a movie. I had never talked to anyone, didn't know who was in it, nothing. All of a sudden, I turn it on, and I get 101 minutes in John Wick 1 of the most insane action and fighting sequences I'd ever seen. Keanu Reeves has become this unbelievable action figure without like a superhero body, but he's a superhero. So John Wick is this assassin from this crazy world of assassins who was married to Bridget Monaghan. Bridget Monaghan dies of a disease, whatever disease it is. He's despondent. He gets a dog. All of a sudden, a Russian kid steals his car, kills his dog, yada, yada. John Wick is back in business as a widower, killing people left and right. I've never seen more killing. Literally, I've never seen more killing. Coca has reminded me that he killed 77 people in John Wick 1. 77 people. And it's not like killing them with kindness. He kills them in ways that are so remarkable. He finds a way to stay alive. And it's just insane. So I'm watching John Wick 1, and I'm learning that he's part of this underworld that reminded me immediately of Deadpool. You know the bar where all the assassins go, where T.J. Miller is the bartender and Ryan Reynolds goes and they all beat each other up and they drink and they have a Deadpool? Who's going to die next? Well, there's this place in New York, purportedly. It's called the Continental. And it's a club that these crazy people belong to. There's rules of it. You can't kill on property. Spoiler alert, that may rule may not always be followed. So there are very significant rules. But outside of that world, there are sort of what I would say, um, no rules. There's just people killing each other and you have these markers that you get. And if you get a marker, you sign it in blood and you've got to do whatever that person asks. It is totally crazy, but it is so full of action. So exciting. John Wick one ends. And what do I do? Because I'm not sleeping. I say, all right, I'm in John Wick two. I go back to back jacks one and two. John Wick 2 was way better than John Wick 1, and I thought John Wick 1 was amazing. John Wick Chapter 2, it's called. 128 kills. Lawrence Fishburne shows up. I think. He's in one of them. He was in either one or two. I can't remember which. In any case, John Wick comes back, and he's got to find more people to kill, and he does. There is a scene in John Wick 2 that takes place in a hall of mirrors that I told Coco when we were talking about the show. If you want to see one of the great action fight sequences of all time, and I haven't read one thing about John Wick franchise. I don't know how it was well received. I don't know if it made money. I know there's a John Wick 3 called, I think, Portobello. John Wick, why would it be called Portobello? Uh, Thank you, Coca. Parabellums. (laughs) That's funny. Portobello is a mushroom. It is not John Wick on shrooms. It is John Wick part three parabellum, which means, what what did Coca, anti-war or pre-war or before the war? I'm definitely watching John Wick three. That's a guarantee. But in John Wick two, there's this movie, this, this fight scene in a hall of mirrors. I've never seen anything like it. Brilliantly directed, brilliantly acted. The fight scenes are so realistic, other than the fact that John Wick never dies, and he kills people in a way that is so staggering with knives and guns and pencils and pens. I'm in, Coca. You got it. He just said to me, parabellum means if you want peace, prepare for war. 
That's what parabellum means. If you want peace, prepare for war. Oh, I do I have to say CV Passum? Is it CV Packum? CV Packum Parabellum. Anyway, watch John Wick. You won't be sorry. John Wick 2 is 122 minutes plus the 101 minutes. You've got 223 minutes for two John Wick movies. What else are you doing? ML Beer Challenge, day 54. Going to Memphis. God, I love Memphis. What's your favorite Elvis Presley song, Coca? It's a hunk, a hunk of burning love. The best Elvis Presley scene of any movie is Honeymoon in Vegas, where the flying Elvises skydive into Vegas. Nicolas Cage pretends he's an Elvis because he's got to get back to Sarah Jessica Parker, who had been in Hawaii with James Caan, because a straight flush is like unbeatable. Well, like unbeatable is not unbeatable, Nicolas Cage said. So he flies down as the flying Elvis skydives right onto the strip. Sarah Jessica Parker sees him and she's wearing a dancer outfit. He's wearing an Elvis outfit. They haven't seen each other in a week because the bet was like pre-indecent proposal. The bet was that you can pay your money to James Conn or lend Sarah Jessica Parker to James Conn. How would that work these days? A man lending out his woman for money. Not sure that would play as well. The first thing Nicholas Cage says as Elvis Presley to Sarah Jessica Parker, he looks at her and says, did you get a job here? One of the great lines, Honeymoon in Vegas, great movie, Burning Love. That whole soundtrack is phenomenal. But whenever I think of Memphis, I think of Elvis. I think of Elvis glasses. I think of um, Orlando Bloom wearing his Elvis glasses in Elizabethtown. I think of the Elvis glasses that Christian Slater wears in True Romance. But today I'm thinking about day 54 of my beard, the 100-day challenge where we will give $1,000 a day for 100 days. Memphis is today. We're giving it to the Memphis Grizzlies Foundation. They are going to use that to help people who have been impacted by COVID. We're going to grow the beard till MLB opens, but we're giving 1000 away for 100 days. Memphis, you're day 54, and you are a hunk of hunk of burning love. I wanted to make on the floor the word of the day today. I was thinking about that. You know that song? I, I can't get to it this quickly, but on the floor is a Jennifer Lopez song, I think. Coke, am I wrong? I think it's like this great song that I used to dance to in clubs that when we used to be able to go to clubs and we didn't mind sharing glasses and dancing so close together that the coronavirus would literally just go from person to person to person. It made a crowded subway car or a sold out stadium look like it was a Marlins game. That's what clubs used to be. So I wanted that to be the word of the day because Alex Rodriguez and J-Lo were in the news yesterday. <clears throat> Do you know what my wait to see is? Wait to see is when I tell you something's going to happen. And then it either happens or it doesn't happen. But we're going to be accountable because God knows. You all know. You're loyal listeners and I appreciate you. Believe me, I do. Believe me, I do. No one's accountable. They just say some stuff one day and the next day they say something different. The next day, something different. I don't want to be that for you. On nothing personal, I will make sure that I revisit every wait to see. And I had a wait to see that said Alex Rodriguez and Jennifer Lopez will not buy the Mets. And that was when the report came out that they had retained a banker and they were negotiating to purchase the New York Mets. And I said, really? No chance. Well, the no chance happened when it was released yesterday that Jennifer Lopez and Alex Rodriguez will not be buying the Mets. Now, why would that be? Hmm. Hold on. Give me one minute. I'm going to get to it. 
I'll get to it. It's because, uh, let me just think what it was. Oh, right. They had no chance to get the money to pay the price that the owners of the Mets can, uh, can, excuse me, that's actually Fred's cousin. May he rest in peace. Fred Wilpon and Jeff Wilpon and Saul Katz is owners of the Mets. They are looking for $2.6 billion. They had a deal in place for $2.6 billion that did not include the network that they also own. Not 100% of, but they own a large stake in Sportsnet New York. You know, that's where you watch your Met games. But they're only selling the team. The team loses money every single year. That money is made up for by the amount of money the network makes. So if you own the network and the team, you end up net positive. If you only own the team, you end up net negative. And the Mets are trying not to sell anything other than the team. So Alex Rodriguez goes to meet Banks and he says, listen, here's the finances of the Mets. I signed a confidentiality agreement. Unfortunately, I don't know what to do because I guess we could say we're going to sell out games. I guess we could say we're going to cut payroll. I guess we could say we can renegotiate a higher percentage of a broadcast money to come to us. But the reality is there's no path to profitability without the network. By the way, JP Morgan, may I borrow a billion and a half or $2 billion? Would that be okay? No, no, I'll pay you back. I promise. Listen, do you know the royalties that we get? If worse comes to worse, we will do some sort of Vegas show where what's it called, Coca, where you live in Vegas like Celine Dion and you do shows in Vegas. It's not a hiatus. It's called a resident, a resident residency. Thank you. There'll be a Vegas residency. We'll make a ton of money. We'll give it all to you, JP Morgan. No, it's not going to work that way. The way it works is that if you cannot produce enough cash flow to pay the debts that you have to the banks, the banks are not going to lend you money. Hard stop. And A-Rod said, by the way, when you lend me the money, I still want to be the control person. Major League Baseball said, not going to happen. So at the end of the day, guess what? Turns out that they couldn't raise the money. They didn't have enough on their own, which we said they wouldn't. And at the end of the day, the Mets will end up being sold. You heard it here. The deal with Steve Cohn will be back on because there will be no one else willing to pay the price that the Wilpons want. So the Mets will not be sold to A-Rod and J-Lo. They will be sold again to Steve Cohn at an adjusted price, not the original 2.6. Wait to see, because Steve Cohn knows very well what's happening with valuations of franchises. He knows what's going on in the economy. He'll knock on Fred's door. Hey, Fred, Fred, Shabbat Shalom. It's business. It's nothing personal. It's happening daily. We're being conned by the institutions we used to trust. The mainstream media is distracting us with meaningless headlines instead of focusing on the harsh realities facing American families. Time is short before something big happens, and that's why so many folks are preparing. They're becoming self-reliant by investing in emergency food storage from My Patriot Supply. Go to MyPatriotSupply.com and secure four-week emergency food kits for each member of your family. Each kit contains tasty breakfasts, lunches, and dinners, averaging over 2,000 calories per day. Save $50 on each four-week food kit you purchase. Plus, get free shipping on Ready Hour four-week emergency food kits. You're not ready if it's not Ready Hour foods. At My Patriot Supply, you can also get solar power generators, water filtration units, heirloom seeds, and survival gear. Order by 3 p.m., and your unmarked boxes ship the same day. 
Shop MyPatriotSupply.com today. MyPatriotSupply.com. 